Lord Jesus, would you be honoured this morning? Teach us, Lord. Show us what we need to hear. Please help me to speak clearly and faithfully. Help us to receive you and to respond. Amen. So, um, even without Andy's intro at the, the beginning of the service, the closet Anglicans amongst us and those who pay attention to the ecclesiastical calendar will have twigged what's going on. Uh, we, we've just read Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And that's usually associated with Palm Sunday, right before the end of Lent, right before Easter. We're hitting it a bit early, uh, because this morning and then for the next four weeks, we're going to be building up towards Easter. We'll be looking at Matthew 21 and 22, at a, a couple of days, at a portion of the events from those last few days between Palm Sunday and Good Friday. And so I suppose my job this morning is to set the scene to introduce the series and some of the themes that we're going to be dealing with in what are honestly quite a tough set of passages. And our lead into it is this triumphal entry. Now, I, I don't know about you, um, but reading this passage, my first reaction is to think Sunday school thoughts. Um, I think of those little palm frond crosses uh, and I think of nice pre-Easter celebration stuff that kids can get involved in with, with the Easter egg hunts and family services and a familiar little story here, but not that important. And, and probably my familiarity needs some challenging there. There's a risk that I'll miss the point. It is a simple story. It is an easy one to illustrate to the kids, and maybe that'll happen in the kids' slot next week. We, we could wave palm fronds or other foliages available. Uh, we could shout Hosanna, and it'd be great, and we could get some of the idea across. But we might skip over the flip side of the message. Because this simple little story is also making profound claims about who Jesus is, about what his purposes are. So, perhaps surprisingly, for such a simple little story, this is a key passage in the New Testament. It's one of only a handful of the stories that all four gospel writers tell. You can find its parallels in Mark 11 and Luke 19 and John 12. But unlike a lot of the common passages that Matthew, Mark and Luke use, they, they haven't just copied it verbatim. They, they each take the time to tell it for themselves. There's something important here. Jesus enters Jerusalem riding on a young donkey and the crowds turn out to cheer him on. Why is that so huge? Well, all through Matthew's gospel, Jesus has been teaching about God's kingdom. If you leaf through Matthew, you see this phrase again and again. If you look at Matthew 13 one of the big chunks of parables. You, you see this phrase repeatedly when Jesus is getting into a parable. The kingdom of heaven is like. Or you can look back to uh, chapter 4 and Jesus' first teaching in Matthew. And he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Or laced throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of their righteousness. Why? 
For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then there's the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, your kingdom come. All throughout the story that Matthew tells, the point is that the kingdom of heaven is coming. It's drawing close. It's breaking through into our world. And so as Jesus teaches his disciples, it begins to become clear what this kingdom is like. And and frankly, it's a bit weird. It's not like the kingdom and the strong things of our world. It's a sort of topsy-turvy, inverted kingdom where the strong things, the the rich and the powerful and the religious elites, they're shown to be worthless, temporary. And fading. And instead the weak and the poor and the humble are exalted. Lifted up in dependence on God's strength. It's an inverted kingdom where, where true strength and blessing is revealed to all who are thirsty. And it's an upside down kingdom where, where Jesus can say... All you who are weary and burdened, come to me for rest. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Join my kingdom. It's a message of blessing for the weak and the needy, but but equally it's a message of judgment. To those that reject his invitation... The guys who think they're okay and, you know, thanks very much, we don't need you. The the Pharisees, the teachers of the Lord, the strong, the rich and the powerful, they're revealed to have built on, on poor foundations like the house on sinking sand. And Jesus is quite forthright as he speaks to them. You could check out chapter 11, verse 20 to 24, or chapter 12, 38 to 42, and you would see Jesus passing stark judgment on those that reject him. The kingdom of heaven is coming, says Matthew. And it's going to turn everything on its head. So, a few chapters before this, in chapter 16, Peter acknowledges Jesus as the Christ. And then, amidst more teaching and proofs of his power, three times Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem to be killed. I'll be tried, condemned, mocked, and crucified. And so we're left with this question. How does that fit with this kingdom that's coming? How do we hold this weakness together with victory rather than just dismissing it as valueless? And I think that's what Matthew's dealing with here. Jesus comes into Jerusalem. What does that look like in the kingdom of heaven? How do we square that kingdom with his ignominious defeat? It's so opposite to what looks strong in the world. I want to bring three things out of this this morning. Um, They might seem obvious, but bear with me. The first thing is that Matthew takes pains to show us Jesus is a king. He arrives at the nation's capital in a triumphal procession. Like a general returning from war. So don't think Sunday school and a few kids from junior church with flimsy palm crosses. That's nice, but it's not enough. It's not an adequate picture. 
Think of the crowds turning out in the city when the football team brings the FA Cup home and the common people rise up in worship. It's not likely in Oxford. Uh, I think Olympic opening ceremony. Do you remember that? With its procession and those hundreds of athletes and the crowd turning out and their hundreds and their thousands cheering and witnessing and, and being able to say, I was there, I saw that great thing. This is a nod by Jesus here and by the gospel writers to the way that the world expresses power. In, in the ancient world, conquering generals would go off to war and then they would come home to their capital cities in triumphal processions like this. They would march into the heart of the city in a great procession, showing off their power and military might. They'd be in polished armor and the crowd would wave palm fronds, which in the Gentile world often symbolized victory. They were an emblem of goddesses like Nike. And in the triumphal procession behind the general, which might be miles long, you would have the soldiers marching in. And there would be the spoils of war, the riches plundered from other nations, exotic animals, spices, cloth, Gold, riches and slaves and captive enemy soldiers brought back to the capital. Captive enemy soldiers, captive royalty. Some of them would be executed there. Some would be sacrificed. Others would be kept as political hostages or sold back to the conquered nations for ransom. And the crowds, they would turn out and they would pay respect and honour to the generals, and there would be riches and gifts dispersed to the public. And no one would be able to deny how great these kings were. That was the point. That happened in Gentile nations. It happened to some extent in Israel as well. So Psalm 68 seems to use this kind of language of a triumphal entry to describe God's greatness. It it makes quite uncomfortable reading in part, but let me read some of it. I'm going to read from 17 to 26 of Psalm 68. It says this, The chariots of God are tens of thousands and thousands of thousands. The Lord has come from Sinai into his sanctuary. When you ascended on high, you took many captives. You received gifts from people, even from the rebellious, that you, Lord God, might dwell there. Praise be to the Lord, to God our Saviour, who daily bears our burdens. Our God is a God who saves. From the sovereign Lord comes escape from death. Surely God will crush the heads of his enemies, the hairy crowns of those who go on in their sins. The Lord says, I will bring them from Bashan. I will bring them from the depths of the sea, that your feet may wade in the blood of your foes, while the tongues of your dogs have their share. Your procession, God, has come into view, the procession of my God and King into the sanctuary. In front are the singers, after them the musicians, with them are the young women playing the tambourines. Praise God in the great congregation. Praise the Lord in the assembly of Israel. It goes on. It's uncomfortable. It's bloodthirsty. But do you you see in that psalm how undeniably God's power 
and majesty are great. How, how great and rich and powerful is he as he ascends into Jerusalem up to the temple sanctuary. And it's, it's uncomfortably bloodthirsty to us, but do you see how utterly vanquished his opponents are? How secure his people are under his rule? That is what's being proclaimed about Jesus as he rides up into Jerusalem. As he rides up to his father's temple mount. And the crowd rightly cries out, Hosanna! God saves! And they cry out, Son of David! The messianic title, the scion of Israel's greatest military leader. He's arriving in town. And then in verse 9, they, they seem to be singing Psalm 118 that we heard from earlier. One of the great victory songs as God establishes his kingdom. And we've got this weird stuff with the cloaks and the branches. Well, that's essentially them laying down the red carpet. It's them lifting him up from the dirty earth. It's giving him a better saddle than just riding bareback. Giving their finery to pave the way for him to enter the city. They're doing him honour. They're expressing devotion and loyalty. And again, it's a kingly thing. You get a similar thing happening in 2 Kings 9, when Elisha has Jehu anointed as king. Matthew says, look, Jesus is king. He arrives in Jerusalem triumphant. But second point, he is a king, but he's different. God's kingdom is this upside down kingdom. It's opposite to the world's in every way. And no less so than in its Lord. So we get one glimpse here. Of Jesus' authority. And it stretches far beyond any normal king. This bizarre situation in verses 1 to 7. Where he knows where he can find a suitable mount for the journey. Now, now cynically we might say. Well perhaps he'd made prior arrangements that we don't know about. But Matthew, Mark, Luke. They all report it like this. As if he just knows where the things that he needs will be found. As if he's so confident in his command that even when it's reported second hand by these disciples in verse 3. He's sure it's going to be enough to convince anyone that he has a right to this animal. We get this odd little glimpse of an authority that stretches far beyond any human ruler. But otherwise... Otherwise, I, I think Matthew describes this triumphal procession as a deliberate, almost ironic contrast to the worldly military version. I mean, what kind of military triumph is this? Jesus rides into Jerusalem. He, he's acclaimed by the crowds, but not on a gleaming white war horse. Not in an ornate battle char chariot. Not in finery and military might. Where, where are the chariots and horses of Israel? This isn't the, the conquering Messiah king that they're looking for. But it is the king that's promised. 
Matthew quotes Zechariah 9 here in verse 5. In Zechariah, God promises to restore his nation, Israel. He promises to reestablish his kingdom, his temple, but not by normal military means. In Zechariah 4 verse 6, for example, he says, he will do it. He says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. And then in chapter 9, verse 9, which is what Matthew's quoting here, God says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is a completely different kind of king. For a start, you you just don't ride into battle on a donkey. They, They were valuable animals in an agricultural context, but you couldn't ride one into battle, much less a foal. It's still young, it's untrained, it's unsullied, it's unsettled, it's probably never been ridden before, it would panic and bolt, you'd be in a world of trouble. It, It even needs, Matthew records, its mother along with it. That's probably just to keep it calm, to help it to follow. Jesus isn't that kind of king. He doesn't go out to the nations in conquest. He comes back to Jerusalem just before Passover when Jews from all over the world are gathered. He goes to the nations in peace. He comes riding a steed that's more suited to an Old Testament prophet or judge. His might is in the spirit of the Lord. And he's come to repair, not conquer. To restore a people to God. What kind of military triumph is this? Other conquering kings, they would return home with riches and gifts. Things pillaged and stolen from other nations. They'd have captives and slaves. They'd have conquered hostages to sell for ransom. And Jesus' procession is poor. But he's going to give a gift. But it's of himself, not plundered from elsewhere. Matthew 16, 21, Jesus began to explain that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Jesus' procession has got no captives or sacrifice, rather in a few days he will be the sacrifice. On the cross, his blood is going to be poured out as the ransom. He's not conquering other nations and taking captives. He's setting his people free. Do you see how the picture Matthew paints? It's a stark contrast with the foolish pomp and splendor of worldly might. The upside down kingdom of God. It's like a king riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. As the crowds shout, Hosanna, God saves. Okay, 
so far so familiar to us. But, but here's the point that I miss when I skim over this passage. He is king. He has all the power and authority. And he is an inverted king. He's the prince of peace. He, his strength lies in submitting to his father's will, not in military power. And so he exalts the weak and the fatherless. Uh, we have these wonderful passages. That a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he won't snuff out. What a king he is. But don't, don't lose sight of the fact that when he arrives in Jerusalem, he comes as a king in judgment. I mean, after all, who's there to welcome him? There's a crowd of common people and his own disciples, but where are the rulers and the teachers of the law? Where are the great and the good? And even this crowd that is there, well, in a few days' time, they will abandon him. The mood in the city swings, and the same crowd of common folk cries, crucify. Jesus, yes, he, he rides into town as the Zechariah 9, gentle prophet king on a donkey. But what comes next in Zechariah? Well, Zechariah 10, God says this. The idols speak deceitfully. Diviners see visions that lie. They tell dreams that are false. They give comfort in vain. Therefore, the people wander like sheep oppressed for lack of a shepherd. My anger burns against the shepherds and I will punish the leaders. This king comes in judgment on idols and on religious leaders who give false comfort. The people welcome him in. They, they sing Psalm 118 verse 25 to 26. They welcome the king. But what comes just before that in Psalm 118? Jesus quotes it back to the religious lead leaders later in chapter 21. He, he says, the stone the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it's marvelous in our eyes. And what we'll see in, in each of the passages we're going to look at over the next few weeks is Matthew showing us how Jesus butts up against the old dead religion. He shows us Jesus healing the blind and the lame, but driving other people out of the temple. He deliberately juxtaposes the teachers of the law and a, a fruitless fig tree that withers and dies. And we'll see Jesus' authority openly questioned, openly rejected. And we'll see Jesus passing outright judgment on those that don't respond to his promise. See, if, if Matthew's right in this passage, if Jesus is the promised king riding into Jerusalem, and if his kingdom is inverted like this so that it's completely opposite to the pattern of the world, then the sovereign Lord will not let that pattern stand. He comes in judgment. So what do we take from this? What do we say to ourselves as, as we go out into the week ahead or as we come back in the next few weeks to Matthew 21 and 22? Two things, I think. Um, first, Matthew presents Jesus as king. So 
Sing Hosanna. Praise him. We'll see that supremely at Easter. when We'll say, he is risen indeed. Hallelujah. What a king. Brothers and sisters, fix your eyes on this amazing, peaceful king. The one who comes in the name of the Lord. The one who reigns in Zion. The one who gives of himself so that his people will be ransomed. Sing his praises with us. And in the run-up to Easter, why not pick up one of these gospel accounts and read and study and pray your way through it? Why not remind yourself of the sheer goodness of this shepherd king and of the promise that he holds out, of the invitation that he makes to us, the weak and needy lost sheep? Fix your eyes on him. And day by day proclaim, yes, Hosanna to the son of David. Acknowledge him as Lord and consciously depend on him and welcome him into your hearts. And give of your finery, lay down your cloak. Whether that's worldly wealth or or your emotional devotion or your time. Give of your finery to honour him and pave his way. It, It may be that you're just visiting us. And you're just testing this stuff out and you wouldn't necessarily call yourself a believer and you're not sure what to make of it. And it does sound quite bizarre, I know. But I I should say, we're serious about this. We really think Jesus is this amazing. I, I hope that comes across in the way that we do church like this on a Sunday morning. One of the central claims we would make about Christianity is that in Jesus, God made himself known. That he gives us there a way to encounter the true king. Um, If you're not certain what to make of that, why why not chat with someone after the service? A friend you came with, or or, or one of the elders, or, you know, collar anyone. Talk it through with us. Chew it over. It's a big claim, but it's worth looking at. Matthew announces Christ is king. He deserves our praise, so let's give it to him. Let's depend on him and fix our eyes on him. Let's worship him together. We'll sing soon. Secondly, if Matthew announces Christ as king, then he announces Christ as judge. And really, that's the theme that we're going to come back to again and again this series, I suspect, as as the Prince of Peace speaks out against the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Against the proponents of dead, fruitless religion that doesn't recognize him. And the challenge for me is it's not just them. I I might acknowledge Jesus in theory. I might pay him lip service. But it's like my heart is on a bungee. Yeah, I I keep springing back to my old ways. Do you find that? Again and again, springing back into habits of self-reliance or self-righteousness or self-condemnation. I I forget about Jesus and I I just try to get on with my life. I I try to find my pleasure or my security or my freedom from guilt in in a hundred other places. And when we do that, we either risk 
a Pharisaic self-righteousness where we imagine that because we live right or, or serve in the right ways in church or hold ourselves to the right modern liberal standards that we're okay, we don't need to yield ourselves to him, there's nothing much to fret, fret about, we can just get on with it. Or, or alternatively, we risk that crippling guilt, that lie that we're beyond his grace. And whichever way, we, we cut ourselves off from the source of life. We, we lose sight of a gracious prince of peace who, who sets peace, rather, who sets captives free. And, and instead, we, we bind our hands back as slaves into the train of some other king. Whether it's career or leisure or religious righteousness or family, whenever we begin to depend on anything else, we need challenging. And so the challenge in this series for many of us is going to be to honestly hold our hearts up to this microscope and, and ask God to diagnose and help us to excise those bad habits, those places where our confidence is in the wrong place, those false assumptions, so that instead we can joyfully take hold of his gracious gospel. Again, it, it might be that you're just testing these ideas out. In, in which case, the picture of Jesus you see in chapters 21 and 22 is difficult. It's uncompromising. And following him does mean change. It means trying to let go of things that we once held dear. It means clinging to him instead. And that's not easy. Again, talk it over with someone later if you want to know the highs and lows of it. It does mean accepting an upside-down view of the world that is completely at odds with what's around us most of the time. But what a king he is. And what an invitation he offers. He says, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray to that king. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Lord Jesus, equip us please to recognize and worship you. Equip us please to respond to you. And challenge us by your spirit and word. When our hearts do fix on the wrong things. Lord, please excite us with the vision of your glory. Teach us to, to sing Hosanna, to rejoice in your kingdom, and to lay our finery before you and welcome you in. Amen.